Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Welcome. Uh, today we have a lunchtime lecture today. The hashtag, if you're watching online, is hashtag ODI Fridays. If you do have any questions, uh, please keep them until the end. Uh, and hopefully it's a great lecture. So uh, our speaker today is Gavin Chait. Gavin is an engineer, economist, data scientist, and wonderfully a science fiction novelist. He's worked as an open data consultant all around the world for the World Bank and the World Health Organization. Uh, and today he's talking to us about the t uh, tenacity of using open data and freedom of information requests as part of a business model. So I'm going to pass over to Gavin. Uh, please put your hands together. And thanks very much for coming. Hi. So when, I, when we originally scheduled this, I wasn't actually due to speak the day after the elections. Um, and uh, there was no actual planned election at all. So th this uh, particular line had already been written. <coughs> and about 20 years ago, um, I ran a nonprofit organization in South Africa that specialized in small business development, economic development. And for me, as a, as a development economist, um, there is no escaping politics because poverty is the consequence of bad politics. Okay? You, you, you don't get poverty by accident. And about 20 years ago, I was standing in a similar room to this, talking to a group of people in a place called Bontehebel, which is uh, a gangland area in the Cape Flats. And outside, we could hear gunfire as young men from the neighboring gangs, the hard livings, and the Americans fought it out uh, for control of the drug trade back then, methamphetamine and still is. And you had as a situation where young men, filled with despair and lack of opportunity, do the only thing available to them. They give way to that despair and they become violent and hostile. And a lot of the crime in South Africa doesn't appear to have an objective. It's not about stealing something. Inside the room were a whole bunch of people from that community wanting to know what they could do to change that situation, to bring hope to their community, to create opportunities that weren't actually there. And this picture is what, for a lot of people, Africa looks like. This is what optimistic poverty looks like. Okay? People who are poor and without opportunity do not simply sit down and die. They try and do something about it. There is hope, even in the middle of opportunity, uh, even, in, even where there is no opportunity. The problem is, is that without opportunity as well, it doesn't go anywhere. Okay? You get a lot of people doing stuff that, that doesn't really matter. And the biggest barrier to changing this and creating opportunity is information. 20 years ago, we didn't have information. And that situation has only changed a little bit. We have a tragedy of what I call the invisible commons. Now, the commons is what we all have collectively. The invisible commons is what we would have if we could get our hands on it. And in any business environment, there are three things that lead to business success. Okay? The first is information. The second is design, and the last is luck. 
Good design is related to your branding, your business design, your special niche. You know, what I used to say is when is a cup of coffee not a cup of coffee? When it's a cup of coffee with a biscuit. Your particular angle is your design. Good luck, I can't do anything for you about. Because for a business to go from, you know, being an ordinary business to being a national chain that does a billion pounds a year, that's luck. There's no design, there's no cleverness in that, whatever the entrepreneur will tell you. But all of this is underpinned on one thing, good information. And that information is a simple question. Can this business idea, all things being equal, work at all? Okay, and here we have a street in Manchester. And to me, as a development economist, this street doesn't look any different to the street that I showed you before. The reason is simply conformity. Every single one of these businesses is doing the same thing. Why do businesses all do the same thing? Because nobody has any other ideas. This one works, so the guy next to it does it too. And the guy next to it, and the guy next to it, and the guy next to it. And what happens? You saturate the market. Everybody can survive, but there's not enough diversity, and so you make do. Introduce some diversity into the street, and things will change. Okay? It'll stop looking quite so difficult. This would be a difficult business area. You want to open a curry area? This is not where I'd open a curry shop. So the question, though, is, is how do you know? What information do you think you'd need to be able to figure out whether or not a business would ever work? Okay? And let's throw some ideas around. Okay? We're, we're looking at you'd need to know. Um, what the, the revenue potential is within an area. You'd need to know the employment capacity. You'd need to know the spending capacity, education requirements. You'd need to know the available land, available property. You'd need to know the, the proportion of, of empty properties within a given area because areas that go dead are terrible to put new businesses in. And this information is so important that the larger businesses in the world, the global corporations, spend billions of dollars a year on market intelligence to find that information out. Bespoke consulting, specialist services, they spend it. And right there is an enormous barrier to entry for any small business looking to start. Because you can't afford to spend that money. You're not going to spend 10 or 20,000 pounds on a market research report for this area to find out if you can open a coffee shop here and whether or not it'll work. Because that's your first year's rent. So who does have that information? Well, government. So, open data and the minimum viable business. What is a minimum viable business? For me, it is the business that covers its costs with the potential for growth but it is the smallest possible business that you can make that will serve the purpose of supporting you. Okay? It is not going out and getting 2,000 square meters to open your new restaurant, it's getting 50. And putting it within a, a volume of cash that you can afford. So one of the questions that, that we ask is, what data sets am I collecting? The data sets that I use, um, and that's what I've done, okay, essentially is, I have mapped every single commercial property in England and Wales. I have a list of every single one of them. I have their address. I have their business type, 
what type of property they are, what type of business you're permitted to start in them, as well as basic costs around rent, rates, staff costs, break-even points, and the revenue you could earn in those properties. Okay? And from there, we can give you an idea of whether your, this particular property would work for you in your type of business. And the information that I need is the master database of properties from the valuations office. I need a whole bunch of statistical information which comes out of ONS. And I need one other thing. I need to know which ones are vacant. And the reason I need to know that is I'll give you a very simple example. Say you had 10 properties. And say each property was 100 square meters. Okay. And say I knew that it took five meters, five square meters, to create a single job. Yeah? And we have statistical databases that tell us how to do these sorts of calculations. And say I knew that the total revenue for all businesses within this community was a million pounds. Yeah? And I knew that it cost 20,000 pounds to pay for a single job. If I don't know which ones are vacant and which ones are not, I have to assume all 10 are operating. At which point I know no business is making money because you've got five jobs per business, 100,000 pounds of salaries, 100,000 pounds of revenue, no money for the business. Okay. But say I knew one business was vacant. Well, suddenly I know that the businesses are turning 111,000 pounds. So suddenly there's room for profit. And that is, very simplistically, why I need to know which ones are vacant. Because otherwise, I cannot do these very, very basic uh, statistical analyses. Given that this is the situation that people would benefit from this, you'd think that local authorities, who are the people who know, because they have to send out the rates bills every month, you think that they'd be really keen to give me this information. You'd be wrong. Because apparently, asking for this information is the equivalent of starting a crime wave. This is a freedom of information driven crime wave. There are 348 local authorities within England and Wales. I spent two weeks looking at every single one of these authorities' data release processes and discovered that 70 of them do publish data, which meant that on the 11th of February last year, so 18 months ago approximately, I sent out 280 Freedom of Information requests. I used the whatdotheyknow.com uh, uh, web service, which is, uh, by my society, a tremendous service, which if you don't know anything about Freedom of Information and you don't know how to do it, which when I started, I knew nothing, um, it's a really great process. It holds your hand all the way through. Okay, so. If you want to do FOI and you're sitting here and you're going, that sounds scary. It's painful, but not impossible. So there's a statutory process. Local authorities have 20 working days to get back to you with your data. That doesn't really hold since they can delay. There are lots of different ways that local authorities will delay. They will ask for clarity, like, is Gavin really your name? Um, you know, what are you planning to do with this? They're not allowed to ask that question, but they ask anyway. And at the end of that, I started getting refusals. Um, I'm going to read one to you because, hey, 
you should actually know what they say. Uh, South Holland. We have not provided an indicator as to whether the property is vacant or occupied. Releasing this information is likely to prejudice the prevention and detection of crime given that empty properties attract criminal activity and damage. Lincolnshire particularly has experienced a high degree of metal theft from empty commercial properties in the area in the recent past. Wait for it. That accounted for 15% of the overall crime rate in Lincolnshire. And so releasing information on vacant properties is likely to exacerbate this problem and the blight that goes with it. Having considered the public interest test on balance, I believe it is not in the public interest to disclose the information. This is in keeping with section 31 1A of the Freedom of Information Act. I'd never heard of section 31 1A of the Information Act. I looked it up and it is information that could cause crime. 66 local authorities took advantage of section 31. So I had a, a question. Where's the data on crime in empty commercial properties to reinforce this belief? And I asked. I said, you've just refused. Could you give me the statistical release that you used to base this? Uh, we don't have it. You'll have to ask the police. So I did. I asked every single police authority within England and Wales for their data. Only one had very good quality data, and that was Thames Valley Police. Um, I'm going to stand way back, out of shot. Have a look. Okay. The uh, yellowish bar, the golden bar, is the total commercial properties. The total crimes in occupied premises is the tan bar. The vacancies are the red, and those incredibly large, bright green bars <laughs> are the crimes in vacant properties. Across all local authorities here, there were eight crimes within the 2016 data release year that they'd collected it for, eight in total. Tens of thousands of crimes in occupied businesses. What does this tell you? If you're going to commit a crime, go where there's something to steal. There's, you know, the question of what about uh, the copper theft? Okay. I also looked up the value of secondhand copper. We're talking pennies on the pound. Okay. You bring in a half a ton of scrap, you're not going to get very much to cover your petrol. It's not a lucrative thing to do. So I appealed to the Information Commissioner's Office. I said, there doesn't appear to be any foundation for this refusal. Um, there's nothing here that says that crime is actually a problem. So some of the local authorities came back and said, well, what about arson? The Information Commissioner said, yeah, but that's opportunistic. People don't tend to plan arson by going online and looking for properties to burn down. What about, uh, what about um, people breaking into sleep? rough sleepers, but it's not illegal to sleep in an abandoned commercial property. So after six months, um, in February of this year, the Information Commissioner released a decision note, and they said, you can't use Section 31 anymore. They didn't stop City of London. They turned around and said, ha, 
Occupy London was last here. We can't have people doing that again. And I, and I loved uh, their one was, although ca the campsite at St. Paul's Cathedral was removed, the threat to buildings in the city remains. <laughs> Which the vacant area that they were taking advantage of with a tent city in 2012 was open space. It was outside, it was the ground. So the question is really is, you know, why? What, what is the problem? But as it is, we've now increased our take. I've gone from 68% of local authorities that I could get information from to now I'm up to 83%. So I've got very, very good coverage of what's going on within England and Wales at the moment. So I can give you some interesting statistics. So there are almost 2 million commercial properties in the country. And that number rises and falls all the time. The, the total floor area is uh, you know, 700 odd million, um, 23 million employees by my estimate. I am 8 million employees down from what ONS estimates as national employment. They estimate about 31 million. And the reason is simple. I estimate employment based on property and by full-time equivalent. Okay, so if you're a part-time worker, or you're one of the gig workers, or you're on a zero-hours contract, you're not in my data. Could that be 8 million people? We know that a lot of people have tenuous work, um, what I tend to call underemployment. Um, and 8 million out of 31 million sounds like a reasonable percentage of people who are in that position. Um, the vacancy percentage overall, which is behind my head here, and I'll get out the way, that's 8%. That's across the country. But there's a hell of a lot of diversity within that number. So you'll go from one town where there's, say, you know, 25 30% to another town where there's like 5 or 6%. And it varies because the question I had is, which industries? So is it offices? What happens above ground? Most of us are only really aware of empty properties when there are shops. And we walk into a street and all we see is vacant shops. But what happens above ground? What happens in the industrial sites? And it really varies a lot. Um, and for an individual business, what we have is about 300 square meters, 12 employees, about 320,000 pounds on staff costs. Uh, 33,000 pounds a year on rent, 2 million turnover, and an 8% profit margin. The great thing about having this data is we can now have a proper conversation at two levels. One, for individual businesses you, using my data, you can see pretty quickly whether or not an individual property will be to your benefit. If I'm only estimating you can make a 5% margin, and given the individual variability within businesses, that's not very safe. The rent's too high. Something's wrong. The costs in that area are not favorable to your business. That's a conversation you can have with a landlord, you can have with a, with a local authority. But for local authorities themselves, we also are now in a situation where we have, from central government, repatriated rate collection down to the local authorities. So what local authorities collect, they spend locally now. There's no block grants backwards and forwards to ensure redistribution. 
And some of this has been at the same time during the revaluation where we have seen the rates valuations for some properties double. Now rent can be two to five percent of your total cost. Your rates are half that. Okay. If you double the rates, you're increasing your, uh, your expenses by one to two percent and if you're only making five percent and rents are doubling every year, you can see that you can erode business profitability very, very quickly. And for local authorities that are trying to attract businesses back to themselves, that becomes a discussion that needs to be had. And it can really only be had when you can see the numbers. So the question is, what was all the fuss about? Why wouldn't they share this data with me? What, what were they worried would be revealed? In a word, hotspots. It's something that I started to notice the more the data came in. And what I do is I, once a month, I go out to a different local authority and I film. Um, I do an on-the-ground uh, review of my own data. So I choose three properties. I choose one retail space, one office space, and one industrial site, and I go there. And I have a proxy business in mind, uh, an IT business for the office, a coffee shop for the retail, and uh, a craft brewery for the industrial site. And I go in there with numbers in my head, and my report from the software on those particular properties, and I go and I film and I look. And what that has done is given me a lot more hands-on feel for what can be a lot of dry numbers. And one of the things I started noticing when I was using the data is these hotspots on the maps, these big red blobs. And you'll see them in the pictures here. And this picture here in the middle is of what was Nestle's head office in Croydon. It's, a, it's one of the tallest buildings in Croydon. Nestle left there, left that office in 2012. And the landlord decided in 2012 that they want to convert it into flats, into residential apartments. And there's a, a law called permitted development, which allows a, a, a landlord to do that, to, to instantly convert a property's use. So in 2012, they decided to do that. In 2015, they hadn't done anything, so they sold it for 10 million pounds. Uh, a few months ago in March, nothing having continued to happen, it got sold again for 60 million pounds. That's six zero. Yeah. So this building has, in the space of almost 10 years, remained vacant and been traded backwards and forwards at ever-escalating valuations while remaining a block of concrete and totally, totally vacant. At the same time, if you look on the, um, sorry, if you look on the What Do They Know website, there are queries that people have around youth homelessness. So people under the age of 25 who are homeless. And there are lots of questions you can go and see people ask them and, and data comes back. Um, in, in, in one area, I think Sheffield, um, there are about 20 people under the age of 25 at any one time who are homeless. They have nowhere to stay. And the time that Sheffield says that they have to respond to one of these homeless youths is 12 weeks. So they say that within 12 weeks they will find that person somewhere to live. But that's 12 weeks of someone sleeping on the street or in whatever shelter they can find outside. 
I ask you, what will happen? And I, I'm going to leave this as a question to you. If you're 20 years old and you're sleeping in the doorway of a building that is empty and no one remembers when anyone last used it, would you break in in the middle of winter and find somewhere dry and warm to sleep? And do you think that the only thing stopping you is that the local authority refuses to release the vacancy data? So what next? So I have a really good data set now for most of the UK. I still have the centre of London that refuses to share. Most of the local authorities in the centre of London are my outstanding. I've got 33 left. Um, and, uh, and, and, a, and a goodly chunk of them are here. City of London and Westminster are my two biggest refusers. But in our delightful post-Brexit world, we need more than ever to encourage investment. And I've been to a few trade shows. Um, two weeks ago, I was at the, uh, the business show here in London. Um, and at these trade shows, you've got franchise businesses, you've got banks, you've got all of these service providers to small businesses trying to attract people's attention. And amongst those stands are local authorities, not just from the UK, but also from Europe. And each and every single one of these guys will say to you, come and invest here. And when you say to them, okay, cool, um, leading question, I want to open a coffee shop. I need 120 square meters. I need to have the following ratios. Could you tell me where those opportunities are in this area? Could you give me a list of places that I could, I could look at? Uh, no, we can't give you that. But here's a nice brochure. We can help you open your business in five days which is a circular argument. It doesn't actually answer the question. So for me, I'd like every inward investment authority to be using my data so that instead of having to give people useless brochures, you can actually say to them, let's explore this together. I want the end user, the entrepreneur, to have free access to my information and the people who benefit most from it, being the local authorities who are going to get um, the rates paid, uh, banks who are going to get loans, uh, accountants who are going to get work, they're the ones that should be paying for this. I also will continue to be shooting my uh, series of uh, videos, which you can see on YouTube. They're called The Coffee Conspiracies. Uh, this afternoon, I'm off to uh, Exmouth. I'm going to be having a look at this spot in 11 Tower Street. Uh, it's a uh, 44 square meter site. And it's currently actually on the market for 79,000 pounds. I want to have a look and see whether it's a reasonable place to open a coffee shop. And I'll film that, and I'll stick it online, and you'll be able to see it there within the next couple of weeks. And finally, if you want to get online and have a look at what, I, uh, what I've done, for 10 pounds for 24 hours, you can go online, you can ans answer a question. You can find out for a specific business where in the country should you put it. Where would be the best return on your investment given the money that you have to invest? So thank you, and uh, hopefully there's some questions.
Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Gavin, for that. Uh, we're going to open the floor for questions. Just a reminder that this microphone is not resonant, so if you think it's not working, it's not for you. It's for online. Uh, if you could also please introduce yourself when you ask your question, that would be great. So opening the floor. Yep. Um, Stuart Chalmers from uh, the Building Research Establishment. How dynamic is the data that you've got? I mean, I, yeah, I mean, just because I, I, I can see there'll be variants of almost extremes there. So you've got that building in uh, Croydon, was it the Nestle building, which seems to be like just being traded to get more and more money in a sort of upward spiral. But then I guess if you go back to like the little street that you had where there's all the curry houses, I'm guessing if one of them shuts, another one might open in within a day or so. So um, all our data are updated at different, different intervals. Um, the ONS data, for instance, most of it's annual. Um, the valuations office data is updated uh, monthly and quarterly, depending on the type of refresh. We do the vacancy data we do quarterly. Um, that's when we do our freedom of information requests. There is an interesting get out of jail card that local authorities can use, which is they can say, we intend to publish at some future date, um, and so we're not going to give you the data now. The future date is not specified, so it can be quite some time ahead. Um, so I don't have any control over that. What we do get also, um, the interesting statistic is the proportion of properties that are vacant and never advertised. Um, we get daily listings from Zoopla, uh, so we have the actual listings as well. Uh, a, a, a brief permutation is that you don't have to be vacant to be advertised, and you don't have to be advertised to, to be vacant. Um, so a lot of, a very high proportion of, of, of vacant property is, is never on the market. It's just sitting vacant with no buyer. Um, there'll be an interesting thing when, um, hopefully, the beneficial ownership register is released later in the year, and we can find out who owns most of these properties. But a lot of properties, nobody knows who owns them because um, the law to notify ownership was only introduced um, within the last 100 years, and some properties just haven't changed hands. And so there's been no notification as to who owns them. Do you think you'll be able to do sort of I guess deeper analysis say that like, if you get a year-on-year -year data, you'll be able to build up a picture. You, yes. I guess you'll be able to build up a picture of trends through yeah. different areas. That, that's, uh, that's what I want to do on a, uh, once, I mean, hopefully quarterly um, rather than annually, but it would be great to build up a, what is a normal level of, of, of vacancy? What is, I mean, for, for housing, for residential, it's, it's really, really low. Um, the vacancy rates are, particularly in London, uh, they're in single digits. Um, but for, uh, for, for retail, it tends to be roughly 10% is about the normal level of retail vacancy. Office vacancy can be a lot lower, but a lot of that's because these buildings are just standing empty with the idea that they'll be redeveloped. So they're not actually on the market. Um, and that tends to inflate the vacancy levels. And industrial has its own patterns as well. Is there any other data that you would like want or could add to it that would complement it or enrich it? Is there anything that's there? Beneficial ownership, um, planning data uh, would be something as well. Um, the difficulty <coughs> with planning is, you know, planning is so diverse. I, I want to stick up a sign. You need planning. Um, that's not very helpful. It's going to pollute our data to some extent. So if we can refine planning down to just planned builds or planned, you know, new builds and new business uh, uh, inserts, then yes, that would be great. Um, I also think. Uh, 
if we can get more demographic data. We've got a fair amount of demographic data as well, but um, it'd be great to have educational levels uh, and, and sort of demographic shift. So right now, I don't present, we have it, we don't present it. It's just the age um, uh, makeup of, of, of an area. Because it's quite interesting, if you look at, um, and I did a video on this you can look at, comparing two towns that statistically look identical in terms of their investment return, but their capacity to absorb investment is completely different. Um, the one town, the average age is like over 40, um, and the other town is under 20, um, 25, somewhere around there. So there's a huge demographic difference. This is a town where people go to retire, um, whereas this is a town where people go to have young families. And so there's, so the growth potential in the one place is very different from another place. So those sorts of, that sort of information is also useful depending on the type of business uh, you want to open. From a local authority perspective, it also kind of tells you your own challenges going into the future. I mean, if, you're, if your demographic is, is quite a lot older than the rest of the country, you're going to have a hard time attracting innovative startups. Why would they go? Thank you very much. Do we have, yes, oh, I might go here first. Closer. Hi, um, I'm Kathy. Thanks for the talk. Um, I guess my, pr my question is around how did you think about pricing when it came to you know, like, you know, the, the actual product? Um, why did you pick you know, the, the numbers that you picked? You know, was it based on time spent or based on how affordable you think um, it could be and, and, and how yeah. valuable it is? I, I, my businesses, we were beneficiaries of the Odin um, open Data Incubator Project, and before that, um, we went through a few of the, the ODI uh, processes. And every single time we'd get to this pricing thing and everybody would go, you must charge a lot for this. You must charge 20, 30, whatever the market will bear, you must charge tens of thousands of pounds. And I said, my whole objective is to make this information affordable, to democratize this. Because right now, I mean, I've worked in, in, in corporate consulting. I know it can cost 100,000 pounds to get a local market worker. Um, and that's a barrier to entry. So I wanted to remove that barrier to entry, and that meant a decisive drop. So you know, the pricing I picked was 3,500 per year for an organization with, a, with indefinite number of users. Um, that's a dangerous place to be still, because when you're 50,000 pounds, then the local authorities go, yes, there's a budget for, 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 for intelligence, and, and, and 50,000 pounds is one of those numbers. But when it's 3,000 pounds, then it's like, ooh, ooh. That's, that's probably too expensive for my budget. And it's, it's a weird sort of place that you end up in where um, you know, price is destiny almost. Um, but I mean, you've, I'm not the first business that will have seen this experience. A lot of businesses that have been built on open source software on, on open data have gone in and said, our cost of securing this is much cheaper than um, what a commercial service would, would require, commercial software, commercial data. That's expensive. Because um, if you base your data product on, uh, on ordnance survey data and you're paying license fees per user and it's tens of thousands of pounds per month, your product is going to be really, really expensive. Your base, your base underlying expense is really high. So your margins are not very good, but you've got to charge a lot. Um, and so everybody's used to that sort of pricing. So when you come along and you say, well, actually, because we're not paying any of that. Um, I mean, I had one local authority that wanted to charge me for data because I wanted to use it commercially. And I said, by the laws of the uh, uh, Information Act, 
you can't actually do that because that's, dis that's discrimination. Um, and it took a year and they backed down, okay? I will not pay for this. Because the only way that I can keep this cheap is to make sure that the data is available as open data. Well, that's kind of this virtuous circle. Freedom of information through to open data so that it's unencumbered by licenses and keep it as low a price as possible. And so to your question of, you know, you've got to then re-educate the market about what the price point is. And that takes a long time. Um, I call it the milk problem, which is if you go out into the market selling milk, everybody knows what milk is and everybody knows what milk costs. So you just say, I'm selling milk, and you don't even need to talk about price. Um, whereas if you're selling something that nobody's ever heard of before, and you're saying, this is actually better than milk, and it costs 2% of the price, and people are going, yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't think I'll taste that. Tell me who else is drinking it. Do you drink it? You know, so it's the milk problem. So hopefully that answers it. I'm hoping 10 pounds for 24 hours is sufficiently interesting for small businesses. My experience with small businesses is that they won't pay for anything. Um, they're a bit like students at an all-you-can-drink buffet. I'm going to pass this over to this question here. Hi, I'm Emma from Datakind. Um, so for the London local authorities who don't want to release data, I presume they're using this, we will publish in the future. No. They're not, what are they're they doing? They're using the, you're a crime lord trying to stop, uh, and we need to stop you before you get too deep. But didn't the information commissioner knock that back? That doesn't necessarily mean that the local authorities agree with the finding. So we're now, so I'm now in this position where I've referred the local authorities back to the information commissioner, and the information commissioner now has to go back to them and say, listen, we have issued this finding. Do you have any new objections to the finding? And then the local authorities go, yeah, we've come up with another objection. And then I get the opportunity to um, object to their objection. So it's, it, essentially it comes down to, can they delay long enough um, until I die of nervous exhaustion? Um, um, why do I, you think the London ones are particularly uncooperative? You know, I don't know. It could be the hotspots problem. There's other information that they may not like. I, I personally do not believe the crime um, story because there's no data to support it. You'd, you'd have to actually have data. You'd have to have a real, genuine... It, it would be something you'd have to be monitoring because you're so worried about it. Um, and so I, I don't know what the problem is. I'd love for someone to tell me. It's, to me, I'm not trying to uncover fraud. I'm, not trying, I'm just trying to help businesses into, into sites. Um, and uh, if, you know... I, I'm not wearing my journalist hat, but um, if you want, uh, if, if there's anyone who's watching online and wants to leak, don't leak to me, leak to someone in the newspapers, please. Yeah, I see a, a common position amongst the London authorities. Does this mean they are talking to each other? Is something they discuss at certain I, I will say that forums? after I won, and then I reissued my FOI requests that a number of uh, refusals came back that were new, that were refusals from existing authorities that refused previously that were a new type of objection and they were all the same as each other. So yes, I do think that they talk to each other and I do think that they kind of agree as to how they're going to object to certain things. Why should London be different, say Manchester or Birmingham? Birmingham did object. They've just recently changed their mind. Manchester is still objecting. I find it's the big 
cities. Um, although, I mean, my hometown of Oxford also objects, and they're now the only one left um, in the Thames Valley that are still objecting. Um, because apparently Oxford is really special. But as someone who lives there, there's a lot of vacant property. Yeah, one other question. I noticed Zoopla had some yes. information. They, how, do you, how does Zoopla go about compiling their information? Uh, in terms of what sort of information? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't too sure. Zoopla, Zoopla provides us with information. We get right. their daily listings. So how do they go about these problems? Uh, they, haven't, they haven't had them to date because they haven't had data on empty properties to date. They're actually using our data. Oh, right. So that's a quid pro quo. We get their data, they get our data. Brilliant. I'm going to take this up to the back. Hi, Gavin. Um, I'm pretty excited by what you're doing because I'm doing something relatively similar to do with homes. And so uh, we have a slight disagreement on the what classes as an empty home. Um, I use a definition called low use homes, which also includes second homes. And then the numbers can really, really start spiking. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I've been looking at is uh, hotspots in a different way because I've also got the same problem with you. They're just never going to give you give me the addresses of a home which no one lives in. It's, yeah. it's never happening. Um, so you I run into personally identifying information. Exactly. Like so it's Data Protection yeah. Act. So it's a, it's a different thing. Um, so what I did was I got a, made a way for them to aggregate it to LSOA level and uh, then mapped it at LSOA. And I was wondering if you've done any mapping at those kind of geographies and if you saw some interesting patterns or some interesting yeah. uh, correlations. So we map, uh, I mean, micro to macro is, is, is the sort of statistical analysis that I do. So because we have every single property mapped, um, LSOA, for those of you who don't know, is, is the, the lower super output area and then there's a medium super output area and then you get up to local authority and these are sort of defined aggregations. So an LSOA, I think, is like 200 homes? Basically 400. 400 <laughs> homes, 450 homes. It's about 20 or 30 businesses. So it's not actually a lot of businesses within an LSOA, depending on density. Um, and so we then simply add them up. Um, and we produce reports just on all the businesses within an LSOA, an MSOA, and a local authority. And so we give you. For all the different categories of business, we tell you the total number of properties, the floor area, the vacancy percentage, um, and the average profitability of, of what's happening there. So we sort of re-aggregate up to get these sorts of statistics. Um, and uh, you know, you can start to see, in our case, you can start to see dormitory towns. I mean, one of the, the statistical things we do is like the ONS publishes employment data. Employment is based on place of residence. So where you live, that's employment. Um, but an area can have a huge amount of vacancy and yet have very high levels of employment. And what you do when you compare it is, our data is we sum up the, the employees based on the properties. So for every vacant property, there's no employees there. For every occupied business, we, have, we estimate the employees and we add all that up. And then you can see these two numbers next to each other. And you can quickly see dormitory towns. Um, so you can see towns that they don't have that many businesses, but everybody moves. One of the most extreme is Westminster, which uh, I think only has like 70,000 people who live there, but has like half a million people who work there. Um, that is, as far as I've seen in my data, the most extreme um, commuting area in, in the country. Um, so yeah, we, we do do that sort of aggregation. I'd like to do more of it, and at the moment, our data is kind of very data intensive. Um, I'd like to make it more pretty, uh, which is the next step. 
Also, I can just second the horror of dealing with Westminster Council. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Great, thank you very much. Yep, if we've got time for one more question. Uh, Harmil from myed.com. I just wanted to ask, um, do, you, do you have service level agreements with the data that you collect and where you collect it from to ensure your services can always be running? And is it something that you needed to consider? Um, the valuations office is, is now publishing under some sort of weird kludgy sort of open license, which means you can use it as long as you only use it in the way they want you to use it, um, which has caused the climate uh, and energy research team at uh, one of the universities a great deal of angst because they were using that data to plot energy use, and technically they're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, and unfortunately, no. I mean, these are all open services. ONS, I have specifically, it took about a year to try and find the right data series that would always be released. And so the data series that I tend to use are the ones that are used to calculate things like GDP or employment because they have to be released. Um, those are UN requirements almost to release data like this. And the likelihood is this will continue to be released. Um, and you know, obviously with, with the FOI, I'm entirely dependent on, on compliance from the local authorities. It's an incredibly manual process because there's no standardized format for any of the data release. So everything gets manually done. There's no, yeah. Be great to get to a position where you could rely on data release, but I think we're in very early stages of the open data industry. For any of us that are trying to make a business out of the data itself, to be able to go, I can guarantee that 50 years from now it will still be released. Um, where I think part of it is if you can find use, and if I can be in a position where um, business is actually using this and business has started because of this, then government has an interest. You know, it's that virtuous circle. So, yeah. I also, um, I'm a novelist. This is my first novel, which just came out in paperback. And uh, there are a whole bunch of free copies over there, so feel free to grab if you're interested in African science fiction. Um, and I'll even sign it if you want me to. <laughs> and my next one's out in July, so you can go look for it. Great. Sounds like a wonderful end, hey? Cool. Uh, so a massive thanks to Gavin. Round of applause again, if you don't mind. So thanks again for coming to visit the ODI. Uh, a reminder that next week's lunchtime lecture, uh, although we normally say we are Friday lunchtime lectures, is ironically on a Wednesday. Uh, and we're hearing from Data.World about open data and the White House. So considering our current political climate in the US should be a fascinating talk. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming and enjoy the rest of your afternoons. Cheers. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute. <laughs>